Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger right here in New Zealand. And in this podcast, I chat to a diverse bunch of people, I learn their story, and then I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, tips, and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. So with that being said, sometimes there is no big story about how people come to end up on this podcast. They simply reach out to me and we chat back and forth via email and I either ask them or they offer themselves up as being willing to share on this podcast how they have reached the point that they are at financially. They each figure that if someone can take a nugget of wisdom away with them having listened to what they've said, then they are happy to help. And from the wonderful feedback I get about this podcast, there's a lot of value to be found in each and every episode. And that's the case with the couple I'm going to talk about today. Now, I'm not going to use their real names as they want to keep their identity on the down low, so I get to dream up names instead. So I'm reaching back into my days at school and calling these two Julian and Sophie. They are in their mid to late 40s with two young kids aged 9 and 11. Sophie was at work the day I spoke to Julian, so he was left in charge to speak for them both. So Sophie, once you've listened to this, let me know how he got on. Now they both live in Christchurch, close to friends of mine actually, so a coffee date to meet in person is scheduled for when we're next up in Canterbury. They're a de facto couple who've been together for 20 odd years now and she currently works in a management role and he is a former Air Force pilot and now a pilot for Air New Zealand. But before I get into it, Pocketsmith, the sponsors of today's show, have a quick message to share. I'm a dog lover, big time. My big fella is called Blue and he has a heart of gold. He would do anything for me and vice versa. And that includes paying his hefty $1,000 vet bill when he recently broke a tooth. Thankfully these days these large unexpected bills no longer throw my finances off course like they used to. Pocketsmith provides personal finance software for all walks of life and that includes dog walks too. I've set up a budget for my dog in Pocketsmith. Each week I set aside a little bit of money that builds up over time so at a glance I can see that I have the money to just reach over and pay Blue's vet bill. Pocketsmith allows me to control my daily spending and plan for the unexpected and that gives me huge peace of mind. If you want that same sense of being in control of your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Julian is originally from Dunedin and when he finished school, he immediately joined the Air Force. It's by absolute chance that I've spoken with someone from both the Army and the Air Force recently, but from the sounds of things, it's an excellent option for young adults coming out of school because, as Julian quickly pointed out, you get paid from the day you join. In his case, the starting salary was a mere $16,000 back in the 1990s, plus he was signed up to a compulsory superannuation scheme, which in hindsight has given him a real leg up. When he met Sophie in 1999, he was stationed in Ohakia in the North Island. She was 26 at the time and had come out from England on a working visa, having just finished her PhD to work at Massey University in Palmerston North. When they met, he was 23 and they pretty much had a car each, very little in the way of money, but a clean slate when it came to debt. So jumping back a bit, prior to joining the Air Force, which was to go on to give him huge opportunities to travel, He had previously had one year in America at the age of just five when his parents moved over there for his dad's work, plus a very short stint in Australia on an exchange while still in school. 
Prior to leaving for America with his family, he said that for someone looking in at his family from the outside, they had a nice house in Dunedin, a holiday house in another area, a boat and the vehicle to tow it. Lots of material things bought with his parents, probably reasonably high single income. But when they left to go overseas, they sold everything apart from the house and he said that from there things looked like they all fell apart a bit. His dad continued to work in the same medical career, but he had to retrain to be able to work in the States, and unfortunately his parents split up when they were over there, with Julian and his mum and siblings moving home to Dunedin to their house, with his dad remaining overseas for a number of years. When they came back, looking back on it, it seemed like they didn't have nearly as much stuff or money as they'd had in the past. His father, who was at that point the only income earner, kept paying the mortgage on the Dunedin house, but in the end they ran out of money and had to sell it and move to a more modest house when he was about 12 years old. It must have been tough on his mum, he thinks, when she came back without his dad. She had no job or career, so started from scratch by putting herself through teacher's college so she could then move into a long-term, reliable and hopefully enjoyable career as a high school teacher. She did very well and was to move up into an assistant principal role by the time she retired. He recalls being a latchkey kid, letting himself into their home after school, and he remembered that his grandma also helped them out a lot while his mum first trained and then started working. He said his mum sent him to a good school and always had a plan in mind for his education. She always wanted him to do well. After a few years, his dad also returned to Dunedin and bought a rundown house in a not-so-great part of town. He was also paying child support and he slowly got back on his feet and Julian began to once again get to spend time with both parents and he said he has a great relationship with them both today. His parents both came from quite different upbringings. His mum from a relatively well-heeled farming family and his dad was raised by his own mother but also spent time in state care while he was young. He thinks that after their separation his mum may have had some equities or shares that her family had given her and she would sell these a bit at a time to pay for things, but slowly, over time, she eroded away all of those assets to keep the family afloat. He has a clear memory of her receiving a particularly large electricity bill once, because Julian had been running one of those cheap gold air fan heaters in his room night and day, and she broke down in tears worrying about how she would pay for it. So money was definitely tight. But there were certainly bright moments too, as his mum's family had a holiday home in Queenstown, and they were lucky to be able to go and spend time there in the holidays. His dad went on to meet someone else, and as is unfortunately sometimes the way, his new partner had different views of how much child support Julian's dad should be paying to support his children. She thought it was unfair, so they challenged it in court, getting a judge involved to give the final say, the irony being that Julian's dad actually ended up having to pay more child support. Unsurprisingly, this whole situation became a real source of tension, and his dad's formerly generous nature moved to become more tight with his money, Julian recalls. Julian always tried to be grateful for any gift given or time spent, but it must be hard for a kid to see such a profound change in a parent when a step-parent arrives on the scene permanently. This taught Julian a parenting lesson as well. He said that he thinks now that the adults were too open about what was going on with custody and money and what have you, and in hindsight, now that he is a dad himself, He'd never burden his kids with such adult responsibilities, and I wondered how that fed into how he handles money today. Of his parents, he said that neither were particularly big spenders. They didn't eat out a lot and were frugal-ish, he said. After returning to Dunedin, his mum regularly said no, and that was good, he said, because he knew his limits. Doesn't mean that a teenager wouldn't try to test them, though. 
When he was a kid, he was quite entrepreneurial and had a lawn mowing business. His mum gave him the mower and the petrol and he got to keep all the profit, which sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me. He also had a paper round and worked a regular gig at the Mitre 10 Sausage Sizzle or as a shop assistant. This helped him save up for his next brief OE, which was a high school exchange to a big country town in New South Wales, Australia when he was in year 12. So he would have been about 16 or 17. He remembers that his mum also gave him an amount of money which was to last him for the four months he was there and he used it all up in just two and had to go cap in hand and ask for more to get him by. This would have been an early lesson on how to budget for sure. Teenagers today have a long list of wants and it was no different for Julian when he left home and joined the Air Force at the age of 17 sometime back in the 1990s. The first thing he bought when he joined was a pair of Reebok pump basketball boots the ones with the pump-up tongue. Extremely cool, but the pump bit was ultimately pointless, I should point out, as are most trends. At the time, they were the highest-priced sneakers on the market, and I actually looked them up on eBay after we spoke, and they are selling for $400 second-hand. So I hope you kept them, Julian. In some ways, that purchase fired him up and made him want to get more stuff as he got older, but he always had that restraint and the presence of mind to deny himself, which is no mean feat when you are 17 with a regular paycheck. In about 2001, the Air Force actually did a huge restructure and they no longer needed so many pilots. He was not made redundant as such, but they gave him the option to leave and because other foreign air forces were screaming out for pilots, the Australian recruiting officers came over and said that they would pay for his move and give both him and Sophie permanent residency if they moved to Australia, so they both jumped at the chance. And because he needed it for security clearance, he was given full citizenship within just three months. By the time he left, his salary in New Zealand had climbed to $50,000, and in Australia they were paying $85,000. But, he pointed out, they also had a much higher tax rate, so it was not quite as good as it sounded. When he left the New Zealand Air Force, they gave him the $60,000 of superannuation he had accumulated over the years he'd been in. And when they got to Australia, having now become a citizen, He was also the recipient of a first home buyer's grant from the Australian government. They used his superannuation and the grant to put down a good deposit on a $320,000 three-bedroom home in Brisbane. During their time there, they read the book that has inspired many, and not always in a good way, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and they thought, right, we have to buy more assets. So they bought a second house in another area of Brisbane as a rental property for $255,000. So they now had two houses with a very large mortgage of somewhere around $500,000, which they both found quite scary. And he recalls Sophie looking at what felt like a deep mountain and questioning, is this really such a good idea? It was while attending a wedding down in my part of the country, actually, central Otago, that Julian went fly fishing up at one of the beautiful lakes here, and he had the most magic day out. And he was thinking to himself, this is what I want to be doing, not living in 40 degree heat in Brisbane. And he started to ask himself how they could get back to New Zealand again. But they went on to renovate their home, spending about $50,000 in the process. And then four years after moving there in 2005, they moved back to Christchurch, New Zealand, selling that house for $390,000, but keeping the rental property. He said that after buying it for $320,000, renovations of $50,000, stamp duty, selling fees and mortgage interest paid, They estimate they made no money on the sale of this property. And in hindsight, if making money out of property had have been their number one aim, they would have been far better not to renovate it at all. But then who knows, it might have sold for less. 
They will never know, and at the time it was purchased as a home for them to live in, not as an investment. They credit the move to Australia for really getting them on their feet. They went there with $60,000, and over time, down to pretty much lucky said, they were able to turn it into more. They used the money from the sale of the property, plus savings, to buy a house for $408,000 in Christchurch, with a mortgage of $275,000, and then they set about aggressively paying it off. Sophie, who was a scientist by training, took a small while to get good work in her career field, and it was not a straightforward process once back in New Zealand. Julian said she's an exceptionally hard worker, so while she was waiting to secure the right job and was building her connections in Canterbury, she didn't just sit around and at one point, while she was waiting to get a career break, she even went and sorted mail at the post office. But she did get into her career and Julian got into his, working as a co-pilot for Mount Cook Airlines, which is now in New Zealand, working the domestic route, meaning his days of being away all the time, like he was in the Air Force, were now over. He said that it was always their plan to become debt-free and he started to track their spending and income in order to make sure that they were moving in the right direction. They learned from their home in Australia that renovations got them no extra money for their house, so instead, with their Christchurch home, they thought, well, let's just pay it off, get to know the house while we do, and come up with a remodelling plan after that. They specifically secured a mortgage with just one income, even though the bank was willing to lend them a lot more than that, but they didn't want to put that pressure on themselves. By having disposable income from the second salary, they had the option to pay off their debt early, because at that time mortgage rates were high, up at around 8% for a fixed mortgage and 10% for floating, so there was a real incentive for them to get after it. All of Sophie's pay went on the mortgage each month while he paid their living expenses and they had set it up so that they could make additional payments and pay as much as they were able. So when Sophie was entrusted to receive a large $50,000 inheritance, they didn't hesitate to put all of it on the mortgage. And I love this, I just love it, because a lot of people would not do that today. With low interest rates, they would instead try to work out some way to invest this money or offset this money or come up with some other arrangement to make their money make money. Or worse, they would see it as a type of lotto win and just blow it. But these two saw a pile of debt on one side of the ledger, a $50,000 bonus check on the other side, so they simply joined the two together. After all, their plan was to pay off their mortgage as fast as possible using their income. So this was, in effect, a bonus income. So they put it all on the house. Meanwhile, their house in Brisbane had been appreciating in value They had left money in a bank account in Australia to top up the rent because it was never enough to cover the mortgage, but eventually that money ran out and they didn't want to continue to top it up while also paying off a mortgage in New Zealand, so they decided to sell it and were just lucky he said that the prices had gone up. They paid $255,000 for it and in 2009 they sold it for $395,000, a $140,000 increase. From this amount they would have had to pay real estate fees, selling costs and taxes, He said there was no wisdom in this investment, but after expenses, they did make some money on it, which was a great outcome. He said they went to visit their old neighbours in Australia in 2018, and they told him that their old property is now worth, get this, over a million dollars. And he felt a bit gutted by this because at the same time, the house prices in Christchurch had been very stagnant. He said that sometimes you get lucky with property and sometimes your timing could be better. And I'd add to that that there is no point dwelling on it because they made the decisions they made based on the information that they had and no one can predict the future. They put that chunk of money from the sale of the property into the mortgage of their Christchurch home. So after two lump sum payments plus regular payments being made from Sophie's salary, 
and in just five short years, they became debt-free for the first time as a couple. He was 33 and she was 36, and this coincided perfectly with them welcoming the first of their two children into the world. And I wondered if there was a celebration on the day they became debt-free. No, not really, he said. It was more his thing, and he was carefully tracking. And while they very much work together as a team with money and they discuss everything, Sophie is very much more of a go-with-the-flow kind of person. A very good conscience for him, he said, but not much into fanfare. So no one ever taught them about investments, superannuation or investing in their future. So with their $1,100 a fortnight former mortgage payment now looking for a new place to land, they just started saving it. Their home is a classic old 1950s well-built house and it actually came through the Christchurch earthquakes in really good shape, but it still needed remodelling and updating. Now that they knew they loved the place, having lived there for five years, they decided to renovate. So over the course of a couple of years, they cash flowed about $100,000 of renovations, just quietly going about it as money allowed and paying cash for each stage. When that was done, they basically just saved and saved, he said, putting about $220,000 into a bank account. Then in 2018, they used this money as a sizable deposit on a $516,000 fully furnished holiday home up in Hamner Springs. After years of having no mortgage, it was a real mental challenge for him to get his head around, and if truth be told, he would have preferred to save up and pay cash, but they wanted the house now while their kids were little, and they wanted it close enough to home, because Hamden is only about an hour 45 from Christchurch, so that they could use it often. They took their time when looking to buy, spending about four months going up to look at different homes, as they wanted to buy a place that was not too flash, that they felt comfortable renting out when they were not using it, and that they would keep in the family for 40 years. In late 2020, they finally started offering it as a holiday home for others to rent, and so far it's going quite well. Although they don't need rental income to pay the mortgage, it does come in handy, and their plan is to pay it off within the next 10 years. So now that they have two properties in New Zealand, I wondered if there was any diversification into other investments, as they are currently, from what I've heard, very property-focused, which seems to be a bit of an affliction here in New Zealand. Currently, Sophie is working full-time and earning about $85,000 annually. It was higher, but she has dropped a part of her role more recently. She has a KiwiSaver balance of about $73,000 with Kura. About 18 months ago, she received one of those emails I dream of getting. It was from an Australian superannuation provider reminding her that she has a high growth fund over there with a current value of about $130,000. She had completely forgotten about it. They have decided to leave it over there for now. He said he likes that layer of diversification it gives them. If Julian were to work full-time, he would earn a base salary of about $155,000 and then receive another $21,000 for extra shifts and training that he does, plus about another $20,000 in allowances each year for overnighting and expenses while travelling. So that totals $196,000 and he is earning about 78% of that total or about $152,000 due to him working reduced hours. He remembered that when he was a young boy, his dad was always at work and as a kid, he really wanted more time with his dad. So now that Julian is a father of two himself, he actively worked a schedule to make that a reality for his own kids. These reduced hours are a win-win at the moment due to COVID. It suits his employer in New Zealand to let him work reduced hours and it suits him and his whānau well too. His employer contributes 8.5% to his superannuation as long as he matches it and for him it's in two parts. One part is a KiwiSaver account and he has chosen Simplicity Growth as the provider 
and he has about $117,000 in there. The other part, which he has little control over, which has about $310,000 in it, is with AMP, and he has limited options and high fees, he said. When he leaves, however, he can take this with him and move it into a better place. He also has a superannuation fund with about $100,000 in it that's still in Australia. He is unable to transfer this to New Zealand. It is apparently locked into quite a low-risk fund that he can't change and he won't be able to access it until the age of 55 either. This bothers him, but there is not much he can do about it, he said. So combined, they have about $500,000 invested into retirement here in New Zealand, plus another $230,000 in Australia. So that's a really nice nest egg that will continue to grow until they need to access it in their later years. And it's definitely giving them a diversified investment portfolio, and it's nice to see that it's not all stuck in housing. Julian and Sophie are working to find a balance of both working in their careers and also enjoying their kids, and they have a few role models around them who are doing just that. They are observing friends and associates who have created the ability to spend time with their kids while also earning an income and enjoying all of the things that a job you enjoy brings. And I think that it's excellent for us all to look around and see how others structure their work-life balance. Julian said he loves his work. He gets to work with top-caliber people, and it's so social, plus he gets to spend a lot of time with his kids. He has no plans to upgrade his lifestyle, and he has found that elusive thing, contentment with what they have. But he does want to put more energy into friendships and is now making an active effort to go out and do things with friends of theirs because when he works less, that gives him the option and more time to spend with people he likes. Ideally, in the future, he would one day like to be able to afford to take leave without pay, and he knows they're not going to get the decisions they make with their money right all the time, but they are doing the best they can. They sure are. Because they've built themselves a stable financial foundation, they're both investing for their children, as he thought it would be good to put some money towards their futures. Since they were born, they've put aside $50 into a bank account each week for them, and when Sharesy started, he put that money into both ETFs and single stocks, a total of 16 different investments all up, which is quite the number. And it was a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi, where he talked about diversification that led him to choose Global Share Index Fund, Global Property Fund, US 500, New Zealand Top 50, Global Automation and Robotics, a healthcare fund and a couple of others. And although there might be a bit of doubling up there, his mix appears to be working because his older child currently has $23,000 invested and is up 10% overall, and the younger child has $19,000 invested, also with a 10% return on investment. Additional to this is another $35,000 invested in Sharesies for himself and Sophie. They've also signed their children up with KiwiSaver using Kura, and each child has three dollars to $4,000 invested so far, with regular and consistent payments into this fund, growing their wealth slowly over time. He has been developing a bit of a plan for his children, due in part to listening to Dave Ramsey and how he advises putting money aside for children. Julian would like to have invested $100,000 for each child by the time they are 22, and this money could be used for a variety of things including tertiary study. Julian knows that if they can get the balance up to around $100,000, then compound interest will start to kick in and it will naturally grow. And if you listen to American podcasts, they'll often reference saving for kids' college because education is darn expensive over there and they encourage parents to help their children through college to help them avoid taking on student debt. 
It's less common here, I think, but I'm like Julian and I'm actively investing for my own daughter to help her out financially once she hits tertiary education, if that's what she chooses to do. Julian's own father had received a sizable inheritance when he was young and he managed to blow the lot on having a good time and it was because of that that he never gave handouts to Julian growing up because his view was that if you don't earn it yourself, you are never going to value it because clearly he never did. Julian was actually glad that he had that view, which surprised me because it's in contrast to what he is currently doing for his own children. And he said that he struggles with this a bit, the thought that if he helps his kids, they might blow the opportunity because they've not worked for the money themselves. Now, personally, I've thought pretty deeply about this in regards to helping my daughter, who is currently 13 years old. And because I spend time teaching her to be a good manager of her money, and because I keep her in the loop with what Johnny and I are investing for her, I don't feel any concern that when she gets access to this money one day that she'll blow it because she's been personally involved in growing it all these years and she understands the why and the how of it. They currently give the kids $1 per year of age for pocket money and he said that it's not so much linked to jobs, they just expect them to help out around the house, which they do. They also talk to their children about day-to-day money stuff, which is awesome and they are teaching them by example as they go along. For example, one child is now asking if he can have access to his own Shazzy's account and learn by doing, so together they will go through that process. Julian also loves to speak with other people about money and a regular topic of conversation is what happens if you just give your kids money. He also has many good friends and workmates that he can talk openly about money with and they tell him both the good and the bad stories. An example of this is a recent conversation which had him talking with a friend about writing a will and what they might like done with their assets. Personally, I think that all of this is good stuff, and by hearing what others are doing, you can pull out the bits that apply to your own journey. Now, I do wonder if setting aside $200,000 for their kids is a massive drain on their own accounts, but he said that they have good incomes and would rather keep their own lifestyle the same, and therefore have the ability to invest for both themselves and their kids. If he had the money in his own account instead, he'd be tempted to blow it on a car, knowing it's guaranteed to go down, So best that he invests that money because it keeps it away from him and he has automatic payments to send money away from him to avoid temptation. If it's not there, he won't spend it. He said the same theory applies with vodka. And just while we're on the topic of cars, the only bad debt he has ever had was when he was 19 and he went to Australia with the Air Force for a few months. While he was away, he lent his brother his car, which he managed to crash and write off. Julian had only taken out third-party insurance, meaning that he had no replacement vehicle cover. When he got home, he went into Westpac and he asked for a loan of $4,000 to buy a new car, and they said, no way. So he went to the car yard and borrowed it at 18% interest instead. It just about killed him financially, he said, and he paid it as soon as he could. But he also learned a big lesson about not borrowing money, particularly on high interest, particularly for a vehicle which will always go down in value. So has he had any other major money mistakes that he can recall? He threw $6,000 in a startup years ago and lost the lot, and he very much wants to avoid that happening again. A friend in the Air Force told him a story about how he and a friend both bought their first car at the same time. While he bought one car once and kept it for 13 years, the other guy bought and sold about 10 cars in the same period of time. They came back together after 13 years, and it happened to come up in conversation and they worked out that the second guy had spent about $100,000 more over the 13 years. Imagine what that money invested could have done. 
They've actually updated their own car quite recently. They were saving up to pay cash for one, a used one of course, when a friend was selling their car and offered it to them. They had paid $46,000 for it and bought it new back in 2018 and they sold it to Julian and Sophie for just $26,000. The timing he said was slightly off as this option to buy came about five months before they were ready so they dipped into their emergency fund which normally has about 15 grand as a balance to seal the deal. Basically, for the seller, that car lost them about $7,000 for each of the three short years that they owned it. So when people try to tell you that cars hold their value, that's just an outright lie. New cars lose the most of their value in the first couple of years, as this example's just showed. Julian scored themselves a great second-hand car, though. So based on that, what habits does he have today to ensure that he doesn't go out and buy a depreciating car? Whenever he gets a pay rise, He allocates all of that new money to investments instead of inflating their lifestyle. They track their income and expenses using Pocketsmith too, which is super handy given they're sponsoring this episode. And he said that he remembers a phrase along the lines of, the poor person buys twice. You think you're buying something cheap to save money, but actually, if it's an item that gets a hard time, then it's worth buying a better quality. He always buys budget brands at the supermarkets though, he pointed out. As mentioned, they always have an emergency fund. Prior to COVID, they used to keep it at around $40,000, which was a level that they felt comfortable with. But through work and pre-COVID, they were invited to a free webinar given by Enable Me, who is, Julian said, massively into property investing. And she said that she used to say to have an emergency fund, but now she says, just use credit or debt instead. So if the proverbial hits the fan, you just whip out your credit card or extend your mortgage. So based on that advice, he dumped their entire emergency fund on their mortgage instead, and he regretted doing it the second he hit enter, because that strategy fails to take risk into account, and psychologically, he much prefers having money sitting there in an emergency fund bank account, which is easily accessible. Currently, their account is sitting at just $3,000 and growing, as they are in the process of building this back up again to $15,000, an amount they are happy with and going forward they will never be without an emergency fund again. And talk about timing, being given that advice and then wham, COVID hits and an airline pilot, whose job had always felt extremely secure, is suddenly at great risk. And that's the point of an emergency fund. You don't know what the emergency will look like, but I can tell you this, readily available money sure does help. My personal view is that in an emergency situation, debt is the very last thing you want to turn to, as it has the potential to make a bad situation worse. And don't forget how many airline pilots lost their jobs during COVID. So would Julian even have been able to access more lending if he had no income? And would he have wanted to use a credit card if he had no means to pay it back? There is a lot to be said for learning by doing though, and he has put into practice how vulnerable he feels to not have cash on hand, which I think is a great lesson to learn. They also have a couple of other sinking funds that they are building up and one is a holiday fund and the other is an account for repairs and expenses for their holiday home. They do use a credit card but they pay it off in full each month. They try to automate their investments as best they can so that it's a hands-off approach, meaning that they never miss a chance to invest. Although they are not married, their finances are completely joint and they are equals and he said something that many couples who share finances completely say it's far easier to manage your money as one. 
Whatever money comes into the bank account, no matter who went out to work for it or how much it is, becomes their money and working together as a team. Even though he takes more interest in the day-to-day stuff than her, it removes a huge level of stress from your life, he said. What about his biggest financial triumph so far? He thinks that it's being lucky enough to be in a situation to always have an employer contribute to his super fund because it's a big wealth builder. But another key win is being able to live within their means. He does like nice stuff, but he has no desire to go into debt to get it, and Sophie feels exactly the same way. They are both playing the long game by steadily investing into retirement funds in their sharesies account and are winning over time. Early on, he was told that you won't notice anything remarkable happening for a long time in regards to your balance, but then over time, 10 years plus, if you've been consistent with your investing, you will suddenly start to see growth with the compounding effect of investing. Apart from that rental property in Australia, they have not taken big risks. Becoming debt-free and then slow and steady investment of their income over a long period of time is paying off. Now, I'm the worst interviewer in the world, and there were so many things we got to chatting about that were not on my list, meaning that there were many questions I didn't get to, but I did manage to ask him what books or podcasts or blogs he might recommend. Julian reads a lot of personal finance books and listens to a lot of podcasts too, with a few of them being the following. So for books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins, Your Money or Your Life by Vicky Robin, The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley, Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, and Everyday Millionaires by Chris Hogan. As for podcasts, mine of course, but he would say that. The Art of Manliness, Mary Holm when she's on RNZ Afternoons with Jesse Mulligan, New Zealand Everyday Investor, Cooking the Books, Ramsey Podcast Network, can get a little repetitive sometimes, he said, but there are a lot of nuggets of wisdom in it. Right, now before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. Thanks again to Pocketsmith for sponsoring The Happy Saver and helping me keep my own personal finances on track. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, have we got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. When these two met back in 1999, they pretty much had a car each, a little in savings but no debt, and they have just steadily built up their careers, their family and their net worth since then. Getting onto the housing ladder was a great first step, which let them build equity, but I think it was the move back to Christchurch, the purchase of a home and the decision to aggressively pay it off that really started to propel them forward, with each house being a stepping stone into their future. A united attitude towards money and a savings habit has just created a snowball effect that continues to build momentum and the fact they have diversified and built up around $600,000 and growing in retirement savings plus investments outside of superannuation while also saving up to pay cash for the things they need today, like an updated car, it just keeps them ahead of the game in my view. And because they have all of their own monetary needs covered, which includes aggressively paying down the mortgage on their holiday home, They have the money to also invest for their kids, which means they are in the process of ensuring not a handout, but a solid financial education and future for their kids as well. And what I especially liked about chatting to Julian was that I didn't know him from Adam, but that our conversation went pretty deep pretty fast into the nuts and bolts about how he and his partner handle their money. And I always come away from these conversations having learned something that is useful to my own situation. And he in turn is a guy who likes to chat money, and guys and girls like him are everywhere, 
you and I just have to look around our friend group and start the conversation. Because when people like Julian share, we all learn. So finally, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to him for sharing his and Sophie's story. I think he represented you well, Sophie, and I hope you do too. And next time I'm in Christchurch, I'll be looking you both up for a coffee, that's for sure. Or maybe a vodka. I did hear mention of vodka. So that's all from me this week. I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. If you want to get in touch, you can always find me at thehappysaver.com. And I would love it if you could leave me a five-star rating and review and share this with your friends. These are the best ways that people can learn about the podcast. And I would, of course, love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Mm.